cultural policy at last, Vizzy, Woodside and Mantle workers facing down corporate greed, the RoboDebt Royal Commission, and good news about glass crushing. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host once again for the 120th episode of The Week on Wednesday, and I am joined by the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon, a short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults, and my co-star for Adelaide <laughs> Fringe 2023, my wife and your friend, Van Badham. How are you, Van? You know perfectly well how I am. We live together. I know. But We're it's, married. It's still nice to us. Yeah, I mean, it's lovely. How are you, Ben? I'm all right. Hachartet. You're learning Dutch. I am learning Dutch. So anybody out there who speaks Dutch, bear with me. I've got 200 words, but I'm growing every day. Every single day. Um, <laughs> ben loves it. He's absolutely loving it. It's uh, it's a, it's a little off-putting sometimes to to uh, hear the uh, to hear the app in the background. But... I was besieged, Ben. <laughs> Uh, so to anyone listening uh, in the Netherlands, I uh, hope you enjoy uh, the occasional Dutch word thrown in just for the hell of it. Look, Van, we are only a couple of weeks away from taking the week on Wednesday live to the Adelaide Fringe Festival. Uh, four shows from the 22nd of February to the 15th of March. We're going to be there uh in the same week that the voice campaign is launching. As we well. are. So we're going to drop in on that particular event. Obviously, Ben and I are unashamedly pro-yes voices uh, and looking really forward to participating as much as we can on that campaign. And we recommend everybody does as much as they can on that campaign because if that does not pass, the cause of reconciliation in this country will be set back by generations. Yeah, absolutely. And look, we will be there. We are selling tickets, obviously, to our show. So do check out the links online. Go to the Adelaide Fringe Festival. And we're doing it in a yurt. It's going to be in a yurt. Uh, for those of you who don't play Ghost of Shishima and don't know what a yurt is, it is a traditional portable Mongolian tent. And it will be at the Immigration Museum. So 5 to 6 o'clock on the Wednesdays between the 22nd and the 15th of March. Ben and I in a yurt. Come and check us out. And look, it's very fitting, I think, that our first story for this week is about finally, finally in Australia, we're going to have cultural policy. I mean, we're talking about the Fringe Festival you and I have did Melbourne Fringe uh, in 2022. Yeah, well. we did the interesting festival in Wagga in 2021. And you know, you obviously have been uh, in and around the Australian arts scene since I started working professionally at the age of 15. Uh, it's all fairly new to me, but <laughs> certainly uh, from my very limited exposure, uh, I have to say. A frequent refrain in this house is, I don't know, I didn't go to art school, which I love. <laughs> it has been staggering how little support the previous government gives to the arts in this country, gives to culture in this country, and, and the lack of fundamental industry and sector support that was in place in the previous uh, coalition government and now, Van, of course, you attended the launch of the Albanese Labor government's brand new cultural policy. I believe it's called Revive. Yes, it's called Revive, which is a not so slight dig at the previous coalition uh, arts policy or rather vacuum where an arts policy should be. So it's kind of incredible, like at my age, which is 48, everything you see, I owe to moisturiser, uh, that... The time that I grew up, like I really sort of came of age and awareness at the time of the Hawke-Keating Labor governments in Australia where so much money was put into arts and cultural development, into creating festivals, into uh, regional theatre touring, into big music Australian acts, and it came off the back of the Whitlam years where 
Whitlam pumped money into things like the Australian film industry and invested money in things like the National Gallery in Canberra, truly one of the great artistic treasure houses of the world. You remember in the night, well, you wouldn't because you weren't born. <laughs> Under the Whitlam government, there was such a massive scandal when the National Gallery purchased Jackson Pollock's painting Blue Poles, which is like the iconic painting. Despite the- not being present, I am aware of this. Yeah, scandal. So, yes. so Blue Poles was bought for $1.3 million and there was a scandal and all the conservatives went, oh, spending your money on it doesn't even look like anything. It's just drips of paint. And it's like, well, you didn't come up with it first, did you? So when you say I could have done that, you're admitting that you didn't. Yeah. And it was an absolute bargain. I mentioned this because last week that painting bought from $1.3 million, what a scandal. Do you know what it's been valued at? I have some idea, but why don't you tell the listeners, Rangan? Half a billion dollars. Half a Billion dollars. Like that's a lot. Yeah. That's a lot. That is a lot. And there are now 11 artworks in the National Gallery in Canberra. There's a Rothko, there's another Pollock, and they were all bought for, you know, Mm. conservative outcry. Well, I spent $300,000 on a Rothko. Together, just those 11 works of art are worth a couple of billion dollars. And yet, under the coalition, so if you, I've been, you know, a bit of, I know a lot about art, you know a lot about finance. If you had a product that you paid $1.3 million for, and then over a period of 50 years, it became worth half a billion dollars, like that's, that's unusual, right? That's a good investment. That's a good investment. Would you, A, like secure that investment, ensure that it's safe to preserve its value, or would you underfund the National Gallery to the point where its entire multi-billion dollar collection was threatened by water? Uh, I choose option A. Yeah, so you wouldn't destroy the extremely valuable things that you got for a song. Yeah, correct. correct. Right, that's very interesting because the coalition government of Tony Abbott, Malcolm Turnbull and Scott Morrison did the opposite. Literally, the National Gallery requires $40 million of overdue maintenance to prevent its collection getting water damage. And that's I mentioned this because it's just symbolic of what an absence of arts policy meant. We did have five minutes of arts policy when George Brandis, does anybody remember him, was uh, Attorney General and Minister for the Arts under mm. one of them, Abbott, Abbott, one of, and brought in the uh, the Excellence Project. It was going to wow. the National Excellence Program. I can't even remember what it was called, but it was basically George Brandis was going to make personal decisions about what art was good and he liked classical music and not Prince Shakespeare and not any of that fringe contemporary broader cultural conversation kind of stuff. So the new national cultural policy, obviously there was an artistic revolt because we rather mm. like artists that are alive. Um, so the new government has launched a national cultural policy. And, Ben, do you want to speak to some of the specifics and I'll talk to the context? Yeah, look, because I, I think it is really interesting. So the with all of the history, what they've done is gone to how are we going to revive the arts arts sector in Australia. So five interconnected pillars set out their strategic objectives. First Nations first, recognising and respecting the crucial place of First Nations stories at the centre of Australia's arts and culture. Fantastic. A place for every story, reflecting the breadth of stories and contribution of all Australians as the creators of culture, which, again, is fantastic. Centrality of the artist, supporting the artist as worker and celebrating artists as creators. From our perspective, I think that's just so fundamental and was just missing for the last decade. Ben loves being in a relationship with an artist. I mean, he loves my financial stability <laughs> and my regular work hours and the fact that, you know, like I never work in a high-pressure high pressure environment. Well, high-pressure, high that was a bit of a Freudian <laughs> slip. But I think it is the centrality of the artist and uh, is such a fundamental component. Obviously, it's one of the five pillars. You've then got strong cultural infrastructure providing support for institutions which sustain our arts, culture and heritage, things like the National Gallery that you talked about, uh, engaging the audience, making sure stories are connecting with people at home and abroad. They're the five pillars. Then under that, you've got principles, um, and the principles build out all of those issues some of the specifics that I want to talk about is that it's an additional you know, $200 million over four years for the creation of Creative Australia. They're literally returning every single dollar that Brandis in his cuts took out of the arts budget. And it's to modernise the Australia Council for the Arts as well. 
they'll establish a dedicated First Nations-led board to support that particular pillar. They'll establish a Centre for Arts and Entertainment Workplaces within Creative Australia to provide advice on issues of pay, safety, codes of conduct and welfare across the sector. This is recognising that arts workers are workers. Well, this is what the Prime Minister himself said at the launch. And, I mean, to be fair, it was awesome that the Prime Minister was there. There were senators from the from the Labor Party who were there. The Deputy Leader of the Labor Party in New South Wales, John Graham, was there. Uh, there were all kinds of MPs. Uh, Yana Stewart, Labor Senator from Victoria, um, introduced the launch, obviously as a First Nations woman, the youngest First Nations representative, I think, in Australian history, federally. Um and Tony Burke, obviously, who's the member. In fact, it was it was so great to have such a high level of political participation in that launch, apart from the fact that all of the MPs were Labor apart from one. And credit where credit's due, Sarah Hansen-Young did turn up. No other Victorian senator from any other party apart from the Labor Party was there. No other lower house member or let alone interstate member from any other party apart from Labor was there, which was pretty revealing, I've yeah. got to say. But there was such a sense of relief in that room. And when Albo went, it's not a hobby, it's a job, like you could feel just the wave of, oh, finally, finally someone gets it. Because I just want to say this, you, you don't know anybody who works in the arts and I didn't know anybody who worked in the arts apart from like my high school art teachers until I went to university. I grew up in a family that, you know, the closest we got to people working in the arts were people who were like RSL club acts and that's fine. But the reason why it doesn't look like a job is because that's our job. Like our job as artists and entertainers is for you to have a good time when you engage with the stuff I do. Have a good time at the art gallery, have a good time at the theatre, have a great time watching TV or a movie. And there's this perception that, oh, you know, these artists are just off having a good time. It's like we work ourselves silly and I don't think even you appreciated just what artistic life was like until we lived together. Yeah, look, I think that's probably true and and. I had some idea about events and sort of event management, uh, but not really the artistic side of it so much. And, and you know, events are generally run like, you know, corporate events and, and big conferences. It's all about, you know, ticket sales and profits and, and stalls and whatever. And so I had a, a bit of an understanding about that people come to events and they have a good time, but the work that goes on behind the scenes there, but not so much the artistic acts there was probably an incorrect assumption on my part that to some degree artists do it because they really enjoy it. What I've come to learn over the last um, nearly, what is it, eight years that we've been together, that in fact artists do suffer for their art um, incredibly. Sometimes you're doing, you know, multiple, trying to do multiple projects at the same time, literally working day and night to keep up your artistic practice and deliver on the projects that other people will enjoy. You know, at the end of that process, you might have a piece that you're proud of. You might even look back on and come to enjoy watching it or reading it or engaging with it. But the work that goes into it is enormous. And, you know, I'm certain that that's true of almost every artist. You know, I can't and, and the people that I've met through our relationship who work in the arts, you can I can see the rings around their eyes where they've been working late on the project. You know, you go to an opening night and the people are involved, they're just they're exhausted because they've been working so hard for so long uh, and so quickly. Like it's a real, it is absolutely challenging. But one of the other key things that I really liked about the Revive uh, policy was that it does aim to expand the, I guess, the pool of people who can get involved in the arts. And, and they're doing that through a variety of different mechanisms. But, you know, uh, Writers Australia is going, to be some, is going to be set up to support the literature sector, to support writers and publishers to grow local audiences for Australian books. They're going to establish a national poet laureate. Like there's a range of things they're doing. I'm campaigning for Alan Wern. <laughs> my favourite favorite Australian poet, like hands down, Alan Wern. If you haven't read the Australian popular songbook, which is hilarious and brilliant, you should. 
but it's also, you know, developing an arts and disability associated plan, uh, increasing support for regional arts, su- support specialists in school arts education programs, so that it's not just... Rich kids making art. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and this has always been the problem, you know, like there was this sort of golden age in popular culture where, for example, there were four working-class boys from a northern industrial town in England who during the 50s and 60s were allowed to go to art school. And those boys who were from nothing, you know, like one of them from a very messy family and they were the Beatles (laughs) and met at art school and went on to become quite significant cultural, like generative producers of content that was quite valuable in the long run. And this is the thing, you know, there was a time in the post-war period where, you know, modern democracies like Australia and the United States, like we actually took artistic education really seriously because teaching people to create to think creatively is inherently valuable to society. Whether those people go on to become visual artists or pop stars or theatre makers or anything else, you know, you need that sort of generative capacity to get people thinking, to speculate and think about the future and pose alternative ideas and to target the culture in certain generations. We are not going to be able to be environmentally sustainable as a civilization unless there is a cultural movement that enables everybody to imagine what a sustainable future might be like. Mm. And you need artists and creatively trained individuals and creative thinkers in order to build that. Like these are really important values. It's not just all about having a good time. It's about engaging the way that we learn differently, you Mm. know, and finding creative solutions to things. Having more ideas in the box means you can have more outcomes from the box. Amazing. And this is the the point of this policy is to get Australians thinking about culture again. Mm. I mean, the amazing, the sense of identity we have as Australians now as a vibrant, cosmopolitan, multicultural country has a lot to do with the fact that the Whitlam government pumped so much money into the Australian film industry. You used to get paid if you were a student who went to the Australian film, television and radio school. Like they would invest in your education on the belief that it was in Australia's national interest to have very talented people who could compete in a competitive process to get into to film mm. school to make films. It produced Bruce Beresford, um, Gillian Armstrong, Peter Weir, like people who went on to create some of the great artefacts of Australian culture, mm. Picnic and Hanging Rock, Mad Max, My Brilliant Career, like these are, and they had international careers as well. But so much of the way that we see ourselves is based in cultural products created by like exceptional individuals who were funded and invested and trained to be even more exceptional mm. and it's it's important like it's culturally important during the french revolution there was a debate about shall we smash up all these this is in you know the 1700s do we smash up all these palaces do we tear down all these monuments do we set fire to all these paintings and the abbe grimoire who was you know one of the who was an abbot but one of the revolutionaries was like no we take these possessions from the monarchy and the aristocracy and we make them of the people. We give the ornaments of our civilization to popular control. So every single person owns this painting. Every single person owns this statue. We all own these mirrors, this furniture, this palace, that this is important, that we must show the ornaments of who we are to understand who we are. And they reflect, if we all own them, they reflect our values as egalitarians. And, you know, some countries in the modern era have been really good at this. And I always talk about South Korea. K-pop and K-horror and the Korean film industry didn't come out of nowhere. Mm. There was a targeted industrial policy decision made several decades ago by the South Korean government that went, well, I mean, obviously it's very weird in South Korea because of the whole North Korea thing and who are we as Koreans Mm. and the rest of it. And you're looking at a country whose language group is pretty geographically contained and they was and the idea was well our sense of ourselves who we are what our values as south koreans are these we have every right and we have the responsibility of encouraging and nurturing these and and exporting our image of ourselves the ornaments of our culture to the rest of the world and of course 
I mean, there was no K-pop when I was a kid. Like that was yeah. an inaccessible market. There was no conversation. But it was created and invested in and promoted, you know, deliberately to share the ornaments of South Korean culture with the rest of the world. Enormously profitable now because they put the work in. And this is one of the things that this policy does as well is that it stimulates our local creators by having things like content uh, quotas for streaming services. This is the big one. This is huge because I like I had a very small and limited role, but amongst my union comrades from the Australian Writers Guild and Mia, who are my two unions, yeah. I was humbled to offer my time and labour in my capacity on this campaign. The Make It Australian campaign has been running for years, and it's been a demand from the organised creative sector because yes, there really are unions for everybody. There is a union for directors. There is a union for editors. There Mia represents actors as well as other like theatre staff and technicians, all of these people. Go to australianunions.org.au slash wow. Musicians unions, we've all got one. So the creative unions have been campaigning for years, for years, for not even government money, but for the streaming services, Netflix, Stan, the big the big boys, Disney. Mm who make a fortune in Australia because we are one of the richest countries on earth and we love television, Mm. they make a fortune here. Their revenue is in the billions. Mm. And the ask was that just like in Canada, just like in Germany, just like in France and all these other countries in Korea, that there had to be money um, set aside by the streamers to commission and develop local content. And... This has been delivered through government policy. There is now an obligation on the streamers to invest 30% of their revenue in the development of local content, and that's going to be life-changing because that means actors won't necessarily have to go to America to work internationally, which is very exciting. Mm. They'll be able to work internationally from home, which means that we can keep actors here who can also be stage actors as well as film actors as well as TV actors. That would be amazing. That means that people can get opportunities on crews, directors will have opportunities, writers will have opportunities, designers will have opportunities, and there will be jobs and production jobs for people because there will be content getting made here. And can I say there's also an opportunity for the audience too, right? Yes. Because some of the some of the shows that I've enjoyed watching from the streaming services have have been made not just in America or the UK or Australia but have been made in in Netherlands in Norway uh, I think I think I watched a thing about Spotify from Sweden like there's a whole range of different cultural products out there that are actually do have some cross cultural appeal whether whether it's because it's different and you want to and you think oh that's really interesting because it's different or because for whatever reason because the story is is intriguing the 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 way that it's put across is is intriguing you know and and it's very I've found it very interesting and some, people have different takes on this but you know some of the streaming services will redub things uh, into multiple languages right. Uh, and that in itself can be an interesting kind of experience because I've watched uh, one series uh, which is about Vikings made in Japan as an animation. Dubbed into English. Dubbed into English. But I've also watched episodes of it in the original Japanese and and it's a different viewing experience. So as an audience member, like there's such a – I think there's such an opportunity here. And, and, you know, some of those those things probably wouldn't have been – created and wouldn't have been made available if there wasn't incumbent upon those services to make those things because of government policies in in those particular markets. And then, of course, they go, well, we're going to provide it to everybody who subscribes to whichever the streaming service is to try and get more audience for for things anyway. Now, these are are frameworks that create markets, and and I think that's a really good thing. You know, people will say, oh, quotas intervene in markets and that's bad. Yeah, yeah, whatever. There's no such thing as a free market. Stop trying to pretend there's such thing as a free market. Exactly. A free market's never going to happen. Well, they're not real, right? Markets are just thousands and thousands of decisions individuals make. Governments create policy which create frameworks for those decisions. This is one of those frameworks. And actually what we've been experiencing here in this country is the positive impact as audience members that those frameworks in other countries are having, but we haven't had the frameworks here to give us the positive impact for the workers 
in those industries. Now we're going to get both. And I think that's a fantastic, fantastic outcome. Look, absolutely. And I mean, this is the thing. We know that we have world-class talent, but we lose it. I mean, I spent 10 formative years of my career in England because there were no opportunities for me here. I wanted to train. I wanted to work hard. I wanted to get better. And I literally spent 10 years of my working life in another country because, you know, this was during the period of the Howard government Mm. and there were no opportunities for me here. Like as a young, as a young worker, working-class writer from Wollongong, like there were no open doors, let me tell you. Yeah. You know? Well, hopefully what we'll see now is a long-term Labor government delivering a long-term cultural policy and building up those institutions. You know, the institutions are the mechanism by which government exercises power, not just today but in the long term. And I think there's a bit of a thread through some of the, through the stories today which is about our power is exercised across our culture and our economy. Cultural policy is fantastic. Building up those institutions, building up those capacities. You've talked about it, Van, about how you then, you know, as a culture, we then take on board the the outcomes of that, the outputs of that. We have a much a much greater and richer uh, box of tricks to draw upon as a society. Oh, absolutely. And I just want people to be confident as well. When we talk about culture, we're not just talking about the ballet. No. And we're not talking about, you know, avant-garde theatre practice or really marginal visual art practice, although I love all those things. Like I'm I'm in. I'm, and, yeah, well, I mean, on every level. Yeah. But we're also talking about things like computer games and we're talking about hip-hop and we're talking about, you know, your local regional heritage you know collection yeah. and museum like it's it's not just one the arts are not just one thing no. they are the creative and entertainment opportunities that we create as a, as a collective culture to enjoy and one of the big things that the cultural policy is doing is restoring money to investing in local games design and computer game development which is fantastic because we have an incredible cottage industry here that was created in the former Labor government under Rudd Gillard Rudd under Simon Crane former arts minister money went into game development mm. build all these studios all this great talent, and then under the Liberals, oh, well, what do you play computer games for? I mean, I don't know because it's a multi-billion dollar industry that employs lots of people. It's creative, it's engaging, it's stimulating, and the overwhelming majority of Australians do actually have contact with it. I mean, I mean, yeah. that could be a reason. You and I are feral gamers, absolutely feral gamers, <laughs> and, like, why shouldn't we be investing in that industry? How absolutely. fantastic. Absolutely. And it's back. Like, it's it's back. It's happening. Well, talking of things that are back and happening, I want to talk about corporate greed for a little minute because <laughs> it never goes away. It never goes away. It never goes away. And we talk about institutions and we talk about change and we talk about progress. Well, there are there are three examples that I want to touch on very quickly that are happening that are happening and have been happening right now uh, that highlight how the institutions of power, of corporate greed, are still impacting working people. Yes, there have been some changes in the industrial relations system. And today, the 1st of February... Because of strong unions. You should join one, guys. Absolutely. Do you guys reckon you should join a union? Ben, I reckon the guys should join a union. Totally. Because today, family and domestic violence leave is now available for millions more Australians. It's now part of the national employment standards. And that, that has started from today. Uh, so you can check that out. This every, almost every union uh, social media uh, channel is got content about that. I'm not going to go too much into that because we know we've won that. That's fantastic. It's a great outcome. It's actually going to save lives, but there are still challenges to overcome. Right, right now today, as we talk, there are workers at the Visi Packaging Plant in Shepparton who are taking their third round of industrial action in the last three weeks. Now, Visi is a private company. It's owned by Richard Pratt. Anthony Pratt. Sorry, Anthony Pratt, the son of Richard Pratt. Yeah. One of the richest people. I mean, there's more than one Pratt in this story. (laughs) One of the richest people in the country. The company has turnover between seven and nine billion. It's a private company, so it's hard to get precise figures. But Anthony Pratt... His fortune grew by 15%, right? So 
all the billionaires around the world got very, very rich during the pandemic. That's that's everybody knows that, right? Anthony Pratt has held on to that. While some of the billionaires started to come backwards, Anthony Pratt has maintained that 15% uh, improvement in his billionaire status. It's hard for me to fathom how much money that really is. But to give you some context, here's a company with billions in turnover, a billionaire owner whose wealth has grown by double digits that's only offering workers an 8% pay rise over three years. That's less than 3% per annum. Now, CPI and inflation figures came out very recently for 2022. That number was 78 what Vizzy is asking workers in Shepparton to do... Is it a real pay cut? Absolutely. It's a real pay cut. A real pay cut. So at the same time, Anthony Pratt's personal fortune has grown by more than twice the rate of inflation. He wants to cut workers' wages. It's it's just... I mean, it really does leave me. You get angry. I do. He and- gets so angry. I just want everyone to. I, I I like to think that the people who listen to this show think of Ben and I as friends. That you are joining us for the conversation that we would have anyway. Yeah. That we've just added a microphone to because we go on like this all the time. But because this is a family show, and our agreement with Apple Podcasts, among others, is that we don't use unfamily language. Um, it's a shame that you don't get to see the absolute, absolute scarlet rage that descends on Ben in the presence of corporate unfairness. Because let's be really, really clear about this. The workers of Vizzy and Shepparton have not taken industrial action for decades. The, they are members of the Australian Manufacturing Workers Union, the mighty AMWU. Solidarity. They They have been loyal to this company for a very long time. And they are now being told to take a pay cut. In real terms. In real terms, while their billionaire owner trots around the world making various investments in various things, playing whatever games he's playing. And all you need to do is Google Vizzy or or Anthony Pratt, and you'll see all the different projects that Anthony Pratt is investing in and all the different things. Now, it's fine for him to gamble and risk his money and take on high-risk ventures around the world. That's entirely his prerogative. But to ask the workers in Shepparton to take a pay cut just to give him that little bit of extra surety. So Millionaire's playground Shepparton. It, it's just an outrage. and It and- is. It's appalling. And it's typical. I mean, this is the problem is they reach a point of wealth where everybody else ceases to be human. Right? This is genuinely what happens, that they become so cloistered and so pumped full of sunshine by the sycophants around them that their capacity of even imagining this may be harking back to a need for creative mm. and empathetic thinking that the people who they employ to do the work that creates their wealth are human beings with like needs, wants, desires, God help us, dependents and families. Like they, this, they just don't think of us in those terms. Well, the, one of the other examples I want to mention is the, the Mantle Group. And we've talked about the Mantle Group on the show before. And if you've listened to the week on Wednesday previously, you will know that the Mantle Group is a hospitality group based out of Queensland, uh, wholly owned by Godfrey and Jenny Mantle. Uh, their brands include things like the James Squire restaurants in Queensland and Sydney. Pig and Whistle is the big one that uh, gets referred to a lot. And that the Mantle Group got done for essentially putting people on a dodgy, fraudulent agreement. Uh, that was knocked off by the United Workers Union uh, and Morris Blackburn, basically exposing that this agreement was dodgy, that it didn't wasn't properly voted on, that H- the HR people had lied. In fact, the Fair Work Commission has suggested that people involved at the Mantle Group be referred to the federal police. Right? Yeah, that's bad. So that's bad. Yeah, and you would think that if that's the outcome you've just had, if you just had that outcome, you wouldn't think that 10 days later your company would then go, you know what we're going to do? It's Australia Day in a few days' time, and that's a public holiday. If we keep our casuals on the award, we're going to have to pay them penalty rates. So why don't we sack them all, then get them to sign on to a new agreement where they forego their penalty rates just for Australia Day. 
because that's exactly what the accusation is now against the Mantle Group. You know, one of the first jobs I had after I left school and I was working for a corporate accountancy firm. Don't even ask me how this happened, everybody. It was too weird and I promise I was on a very low level. But they sacked us before Christmas and rehired us after New Year so they wouldn't have to pay us. This is, I mean, this is... And I was like, that was the summer I turned into a socialist. This is just outrageous. Like, these people have absolutely no idea. Now, mostly the workers at the Mantle Group, uh, and there's been lots of other stories about this. Morris Blackburn and the United Workers Union are getting this story out there. So do check it out wherever you can. But these are young workers. These are migrant workers. These are workers in very precarious circumstances often. And, you know, people say, oh, why why wouldn't you just go and get a job somewhere else, you know? Because that's the job they've got. And if you've got bills due on Friday and you get sacked on Monday Monday night and then presented with a new contract on Tuesday for your shift on Wednesday, you're going to sign it. Yeah, it's not like we're living in the days of full employment where, you know, you lost one job, you could walk down outside the factory gates and hope the foreman would pick you for another one tomorrow. Like, it's not like that. No. Has it ever been like that? In no, your, in your working, the memory of your working life, Ben, you've no. ever been able to just get a job tomorrow if you lost one today? No, and it just doesn't. It just doesn't work like that, and it particularly doesn't work like that when you just got get another job. Seven hundred people this happened to. Right. Seven hundred people. So it's not like oh well, you know, it's five people over here. No, no, seven hundred people this happened to. So not seven hundred. You can't replace seven hundred households. Yeah, is seven hundred small business like this businesses minimum that they're not going to be consuming at. And I want to give a I want to give a bit of context to that as well, right? Because these there are analysts who do some really good work in in this space. So one industry analyst put Mantle's revenue per employee at $254,000 a year. Now I guarantee you those workers are not getting paid $254,000 a year. But that's what the Mantle Group is extracting in terms of value from these workers. And then for them, this this company, these companies owned by Godfrey and Jenny Mantle, to turn around and try and deny these workers their just entitlements is absolutely outrageous. And if you're in hospitality, you should absolutely be joining your union. As I'm talking right now, as Van and I are having this discussion, if you're not on australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W, joining your union while we're having this conversation, it better be because you're already a member. (laughs) Because, you know, those- it's the only protection you've got. It's like the only people who will fight for you. There is no mysterious, there's no mysterious Bureau of Kindness. That's not actually what the Fair Work Commission does. That's not what the Fair Work Ombudsman doesn't, it does not exist to go out and something created by, you know, like de- like a decade of Liberal Party policy does not exist to make your life as a working person more enfranchised. But I also just want to say, when we talk about how these employees from the Mantle Group are generating revenue of a quarter of a million dollars a year and literally in no way are they getting paid that, right? That's not happening. Do you know what we've just given you? We've just given you a Marxism. So you might have been told at school, at university, on the news, by Sky Newhost, your uncle, whoever, that Marxism, oh, Marxism, oh. Okay, leaving aside the complete economic and social and cultural failure of the Soviet Union, which, by the way, had a lot more to do with authoritarianism than Marxism. Marxism is about a system of analysis that looks at the material world that is actual physical things and the movement of classes, like classes of worker, within that. So when we talk about a worker getting paid, what, $60,000 a year. Oh, less. Less than that. Who's, I'm being optimistic, generating revenue of $250,000 a year. We have just used a Marxist analysis to explain to you why this is absolute, absolute guff. This is outrageous. And let me tell you, the, that analysis is publicly available. I got it from a website, uh, that is, that provides industry analysis and company analysis about revenue generation per employee for investors. So this this is this is part of what capitalists do all the time. So yes, this is thinking about it differently, but this is the same data that capitalists use. That just that the way they use it 
is to go, how do we maximize profit and return to the owners? In this case, the owners being Godfrey and Jenny Mantle. How can we extract more value from our labor force? That's right. And that's exactly what they're doing. And look, you know, it's workers standing together that actually get the wins. It was workers who got that those old dodgy agreements knocked off. It's workers standing together in Shepparton at Vizzy right now, taking action between now and Friday at 7 a.m. And also, Van, workers standing together across unions. So, you know, there's been workers are winning where they stand together. The Australian Workers Union and the Maritime Union of Australia have formed an offshore alliance. They've been working together for some time because the giant, giant corporation that is Woodside Oil and Gas or Woodside Petroleum, whatever, <laughs> Woodside whatever they call themselves today. Things that threaten the continued existence of human life on Earth Corporation. Hugely, hugely profitable corporations. Their shares are up 60% since the start of 2022, and they exported $7.5 billion worth of liquid natural gas from Australia to the world in the year 2022. That's in one year. This is a massive corporation, right? Their their former CEO retired in 2022, and that year he got paid $12.2 million just, just for that one year. This is a huge corporation. Now, those workers in the Offshore Alliance are working on gas platforms, you know, and they are in incredibly difficult and dangerous conditions and yes, there are question marks about the long-term future of liquid natural gas. And there are long-term questions about the future of gas as a fuel source. At the moment... Especially in your stove. Absolutely. We've had that conversation on the week on Wednesday. But at the moment, there is demand for gas. And while the world is transitioning to more renewable forms of energy, there are corporations that are making huge profits from those resources. But the workers who go to work every day on those platforms are exposed to dangerous conditions. They are away from their families. They are generating vast amounts of money for those corporations. And yes, some of them are well remunerated by, you know, compared to the minimum wage or compared to the average wage, whatever mm, it might be. Because they could actually die at work. I and, mean, and that is the thing that happens. And that is a thing that happens. And generally, if you're going to die at work, you're taking a risk you should be compensated for. Oh, crazy. Woo, out there. What radical thinking. I must be a Marxist. Woodside has refused to negotiate a collective agreement with those workers. Can you guess how long they've refused to do this for? Well, I mean, I've got no love of the capitalist system, Ben, so I'm going to say at least two decades. 30 years. Right, sorry, three decades. 30 three years. Three decades. Woodside has fought against. Three zero. The workers having the right. Ten times three. The Having the right to collectively bargain. Two times 15 years. For their wages and conditions. Like this is, when we talk about why the bargaining system needed to change and why the, the systems of power and the institutions in this country need change and need different leadership. It's because there are workers who participated in these negotiations 30 years ago who have literally died since they started. And, you know, it's a credit to the, to the members of the AWU and the MUA who have fought and fought and fought and not given up. You know, there were nine legal challenges lodged by Woodside to prevent them from having a collective agreement. Nine legal challenges. It was described by Daniel Walton, who's the National Secretary of the Australian Workers' Union, as corporate lawfare to stop the workers. You know, they did they did some just absolutely outlandish things, like trying to get workers to sign documents and then compare the signatures to the signatures that were collected to say they wanted to have a collective agreement. Now, this this decision that's been made doesn't mean the workers have a collective agreement, by the way. It just means they have a right to bargain for one, to negotiate one, right? And the, and the company fought for 30 years to stop them even having that right. And this is another thing, like, 
you know, Ben, ben and I are light in the eyes union zealots because we personally and collectively benefit from from union representation. Yeah. And one of the things that you get with union membership that a lot of people don't necessarily think about is that when you join a union, you're joining an organisation that has an institutional memory of what has taken place before. Yeah. That can fight a case for 30 years because it's not dependent on individuals, it's dependent on the institution to maintain that fight. And they have a context and they have an understanding and they know where the bodies are buried and they have the tenacity as an institution to persist beyond whoever the individual staff members are at the time. And it is and it is that capacity, right? Like that's the point. It's that collectively working people can pool our resources, pool our knowledge, pool our capacity, you know, against, against a corporation that that is just in one of its products made seven and a half billion dollars in a year. You know, these are we're talking about a few hundred people. Individually, they would never have had the capacity to take on such a massive corporation. But together, over decades, they were able to stand and actually win the rights that they that they wanted. Yeah, of course. You know, and and that's that's fundamentally what it takes. And we see, you know, Van, the the where corporations want to give off this kind of oh, we're such good corporate citizens. We do all this stuff, uh, you know, in local sports groups or for sustainability. Yeah, because they hire PR people to do that for them. Exactly. So nobody goes, wow, isn't your multi-billion-dollar corporation exploiting workers in order to poison the planet? I mean, that's... And you can go to the... You know, I mean, that's a difficult message to sell unless you have someone going, we're made of daisies. Everything we touch smells like a field. Hug this baby hedgehog. But it's all of them. They all do it. You go to they the, all do it. Of course they do. You go are. to the Mantle Group website and they talk about how much they're into sustainability. Oh, so into Local it. sporting groups. Oh, so much. You know, you go to visit. But we do it all out of the kindness of our hearts, Ben. Yeah. As rapacious labour value extracting capitalist scumbags. Like we're just inherently altruistic types. And do you know who we hug? Gnomes. We yeah. hug gnomes. We find gnomes and oh, we jump, pinch their little chubby cheeks. And can I just say, one of the many reasons I fell in love with Ben, Ben is awesome at strategy. He's great at messaging. He is, if you're listening to this podcast, oh. you are leaving proof that the man is a bit of a communications genius. And can I just say one of the things I really like about him is he uses his powers for good instead of evil. But there are plenty of people with those powers who use them for evil because they want to live somewhere fancy. Yeah, and that's the really, really sad thing because they there are people who do use them for evil. And I think it, it brings me to the to the last story before we have our good news story for this week, which is to to just give people a bit of an update on where the Robo Debt Royal Commission has got to. Oh my god. Because you want to talk about using communications powers for evil. The the testimony of Rochelle Miller and and today, Alan Tudge. Now you may remember Michelle, Rochelle. Rochelle, sorry, Rochelle Miller, not Michelle Miller, um, from such uh, stories as was a former partner of Alan Tudge treated incredibly badly by him, has made allegations of actual abuse, and of course made complaints, lost her career. That's Rochelle Miller. So she has villages to burn down, I believe, is Yeah. And she was she was a she was a communications advisor. She was. And she has testified to the Royal Commission into RoboDebt. Into RoboDebt that they perceived uh, that the ABC was left-wing media. The ABC. And that what they would do The ABC is left-wing media. And apparently. What they would do whenever there was criticism is they would seed stories in the quote-unquote right-wing media, this is from her testimony, uh, about the participants who had complained. They would, Alan Tudge had a file on every person who appeared in the media talking about robo-debt, and he would make an evaluation about whether or not to release information about those people to the right-wing media. They would give exclusives, in inverted commas, to the Australian to run positive stories about how much money they were recovering for the Commonwealth and why it was such a good idea. 
This is using the powers to communicate, using the powers of the state. The imprimatur of government, which is a very powerful imprimatur. To attack. Which basically means stamp and status. To attack some of the most vulnerable people in our community for political gain. And in fact, Rochelle Miller has admitted to the to the Royal Commission that even while people were raising concerns, even in the years where people were questioning the legality of the robo-debt scheme, the Prime Minister's office, the Liberal Prime Minister's office, was praising the political outcomes in marginal seats because of the perception of cracking down on quote-unquote dole cheats and welfare cheats. That is such an abuse of power for no reason other than to hold on to power for its own sake. Again, let's put this in context because this doesn't come out of nowhere either. No. Did you know in Australia, like, there was quite an activist effort for there to be dole payments because we didn't have them across this country during the Great Depression, which was a time when people learnt pretty conclusively that uh, rates of unemployment are not because individuals are lazy. Mm. Rates of unemployment in a society are determined by the economic parameters of that society and what the government and capitalist employers are doing to create jobs for people. And after that period, for decades in this country, we had proactive full employment policies Policy, and we understood that unemployment was a, was a symptom of structural issues within the economy, not an outbreak of laziness. Since the 1970s, conservatives have deliberately been inserting terms like doll bludger in Australia because think tanks worked yeah. on this. How can we demonise people who are unemployed because if we make unemployment terrible, nobody will you know join unions and campaign for pay rises because they'll be terrified of getting sacked. So in Australia they use doll bludger because doll and blood mm. were these common terms. In America, they use welfare queens. Mm. Mm. And uh, in the in the UK, they use scroungers. Yeah. Yeah. And they're all, they were focus grouped and think tanked and PR people worked on finding the most culturally familiar demonising terms, even though it was an international network of horrible, evil neoliberals who came up with this garbage because they wanted to put artificial downward pressure on wages by making people terrified of unemployment. And, and what the Royal Commission into the Robodet scheme is uncovered is how dehumanised people were under the Liberal government. So all of that history, all of that cultural downward pressure that flowed through into the Abbott, Turnbull, Morrison government manifested as this illegal, unlawful, dehumanising damaging piece of policy where the more money was recovered from people who in most cases, as it turns out, did not owe any money to the Commonwealth, had no debt to repay, but were being forced into repayments. The more that happened, the more there was a sense of achievement. And it and it has played out with some of the civil servants and former civil servants who've given testimony, some of them have expressed just how toxic culturally the government was and working in that government had become. But Alan Tudge's testimony today, I saw a little bit of it, Van, and I have to say he was just so despicable, so unrepentant that that it, it boggles the mind that he was ever a Minister of the Crown, that he remains still a senior member of the Liberal Party. He's still a member of Parliament, but he took no responsibility. He tried to throw Christian Porter under a bus. Christian Porter himself will appear before the Royal Commission in the next couple of days. Morrison has already appeared. His appearance was, and I talk, we've talked what about this. What a gang. Alan Tudge, Christian Porter, and Scott Morrison. What a trio. And, you know, I, I wrote a piece uh, for The Age about Christian Porter's moralising on uh, Centrelink uh, recipients well, well back when I was working in uh, for United Care because he's had, a, he's had an absolute, absolute conviction that 
people who need support are somehow or another these doll bludgers taking advantage, whatever it is. Well, right? the queen scroungers. They have in they have they have just soaked themselves in that right wing ideological toxicity for so long that they believe it. And that when people raised issues around the RoboDebt uh, scheme, if they were being raised, they were being dismissed because, well, of course they'd say that they owe us money. Well, of course they'd say that the ABC is a left-wing organism. You know, it's funny you should say that, Ben, because I'm looking at a tweet from Shalala Medora right now. Shalala works for Triple J Hack. She's a journalist. And she reported four hours ago... Quite a significant admission from Alan Tudge, who's giving Mm. evidence at the Robodet Royal Commission today, and here is the quote. I was aware that the system, even from an income averaging perspective, had the potential to create inaccuracies. So they know. They knew. Of course they knew. They just think the proles are animals, everybody on welfare is a scumbag, you know, that we don't really deserve anything and how much fun to kick us and punish us. You know, look, I was on the doll and I was on the DSP when I was younger and it was terrifying. I lived in Wollongong. Wollongong has a systemic youth unemployment problem and had for a very long time. It was almost impossible to leave because you got so ground into the spiral of poverty that there were no opportunities, there was no money to get out. It was really hard and a series of miracles got me out and genuine miracles got me out of the place that I was in. Mm. And for these guys to sit in judgment, I think of the person who I was when I was unemployed and I had I suffered from hysteresis, which is what they call the sort of mental state you go into when you feel like you're worthless and your actions mean nothing. It's like this sort of horrible sort of social stasis where you can't really move and you can't imagine that anything's going to get any better and you go through the motions and everything becomes terrible. Mm -hmm. You know, this idea that, you know, young people are out having a great time if they're unemployed, when also we know that the majority of unemployed people aren't aren't young. They're older workers who get scrap heaped, who aren't retrained, who aren't given opportunities, who live in places with high unemployment, all these things, and they just think that we're filth. And I look at the person who I was when I was in that situation and I was a mess. I was an absolute mess and I had no hope and the idea that they would punish and kick down on that person or anyone like them, it, they're just – and who the hell is Alan Tudge? Yeah. Like he's literally going to be most famous for cruelty, selfishness and allegations of abuse. Yeah, and I think it just – you know, this this whole Royal Commission has really exposed the the gap between – in particular, the Liberal Party and their ideology uh, and the values that make this country great and the, the lives of ordinary people in this country and their contempt for, for us. You know, I mean, I've had periods of unemployment where I, like yourself, absolutely despondent. And we know that, that unemployment can be a real source of the longer you're unemployed, and the more pressure that's put on you about that, the harder and harder it is for you to participate in society. And it is just to then get a letter saying, we've determined that you owe us some tens of thousands of dollars, which might be more money than you've ever had oh. in any one time in your entire life. We know that people did engage in self-harm. And some of the testimony from witnesses about their mental state when they got those notices is is heartbreaking it's really hard uh, you know Luke Enrique Gomez who writes obviously for the Guardian as well van he's written some amazing stuff about this uh, about this Royal Commission and the impact that it this scheme had on people and their lives it's just the damage has been done all we can really hope to do now is to help those who've survived it as best we can, to reform the system as best we can, and, of course, to make sure it never, ever happens again. Do you know what I find so disgusting about Robodeck? It's the absolute screaming lack of patriotism or community sentiment or any kind of pride in being Australian at all. Because if you're a government and you've got a population of unemployed people, you know, the Liberals, oh, it's a burden It's or it's an opportunity to drive down wages. Yeah. And what I see is capacity for community building. 
you know, if you have a number of unemployed people, you're looking at people who can be a labour force, who have skills and insights and experiences to give to their communities. And if you're a decent government, if you love this country, you create opportunities for those people to work, to participate, to train, to enhance, to expect, like all of those things. Mm. And that's what I just find so revolting. How can you treat Australians with such contempt? Well, they certainly have. And look, the Royal Commission will produce a final report by the 18th of April. We'll come back to this story, I'm sure. You know, we don't talk about it every week uh, because, frankly, it would be too depressing. You can follow some people are like... I go back there, don't I? Well, it is. It's hard. It's, you know, we, you and I have a lived experience of this. We have, we have real genuine memories of it. And, and we know people who are living through it now. And, you know, it's not easy and it's hard to, it's really hard to communicate about it, particularly when you're communicating about it, sometimes to people who've never lived through it, who have no experience of it, who've had no connection to it. And then you're trying to understand how people who don't have that connection, don't have that experience, made decisions. That hurt people. Fundamentally. That hurt literally the most vulnerable people in the community. It's just. People who were already suffering. It's just really, really outrageous. And, you know, look, the commissioner who is doing this, the the Royal Commissioner, is really thorough, really made Alan Tudge, in my view, just look like the absolute numpty that he is. Like he just fundamentally, you know, he's got a law degree, but said, oh, I've never practised, couldn't recall basic things, didn't have any grasp of any of the legal discussion around the issue, even when he was the minister. Like it just made him look lazy and incompetent and uncaring and that's probably because he is those things. A shout out to everyone who remembers Alan Tudge from his Melbourne Uni days when he was on the student union there and used to get around in his tracky dacks because he was like, you know, so unbothered. Big well, kisses, Alan. Well, I think he's a bit bothered today. Look, we want to finish up with some good news before we get into giving our shout outs to those excellent supporters of the podcast. Ben, the good news this week is one that I found. Um, from Flinders Island. He gets so excited when he finds them. He hands them to me like love gifts. Tell me about Flinders Island. So the residents of Flinders Island have found a way to improve the strength and consistency of concrete made on the island by adding 15% crushed glass to their concrete mixture and using a very special glass crushing machine that was created on the island by local people and it turns the glass from bottles into a product that is more like a type of coarse sand. Now, they're using this to make paths, walls, supplement garden beds. They're even using the full potholes, right? So this is, they've done 6,000 bottles through this process, which isn't a huge amount to start with, right? Like, and they acknowledge this. They, a start is a start is a start. They, they, they need some support to get to scale. Uh, and, and, you know, Flinders Island is a small place. They actually anticipate that they'll run out of landfill uh, in the next, within the next year. But processes like this will allow them to make reuse of their materials in a much more efficient and effective way. I think these are the sorts of things that we need to have more of in our... Yeah, we need a more circular economy. And I'd like to do a shout-out to the state MP for Northcote, um, Kat Theophanis, who is <laughs> who is a champion of uh, plastic reduction. And if you are on Facebook, have a look at her Facebook page because she's asking people for more suggestions about how we can get plastic out of the economy and running like a, you know, you'll mm. go into a hat and you can win this wonderful basket full of plastic-free stuff. Like, and, yeah, I mean, this is the thing. People are making the effort and it does start local and the creative solutions that you come up with about getting plastic or reducing, um, you know, waste, reusing glass, you know, mm. coming up with new, these are important initiatives. And the idea that, you know, this small community of Flinders Island is like, hey, guys, 
we've sorted out the glass <laughs> thing. That's awesome. Like that's literally the creative thinking. Woo, look at that callback on which a circular economy depends. It should be encouraged everywhere. Absolutely. That is our show for this week. But before we go, don't forget you can get tickets to the Adelaide Fringe Festival now. Hang out in the yurt. Between the 22nd of February and the 15th of March, we'll be there every Wednesday. The shows will go up online as well. If you want to be in the audience, get yourself to Adelaide, get yourself a ticket. And it'll be great. And, of course, the show has gone from having no financial contributors uh, in January of 2022 to now having hundreds of people making a contribution to growing our audience, to making sure that this podcast reaches more and more people. Every dollar that people contribute, whether they're a cadre supporter chipping in $20 a month or giving a one-off contribution or chipping in a buck a week. Or if you're low on dollars, which is fine, and Ben and I have both been there, just share the show on social media or get some friends together and have a listening party if you're into it. Those things help us just as much as the advertising that we use contributions to pay for. Absolutely. But we do always want to acknowledge that those people who have made that financial contribution, sacrifice, however you want to put it, our car drive van, can you read out their names for us? I've got new names on this too. This is exciting. Yeah. All right, you ready, everybody? Are you ready? I know people live for this. Steph, Karina Bali, at Jane C. Campbell, Leona Gibbons, Jason Dallas, Camille, Akiva Boris, Kristen Shikluna, Gabe Kramer, hey, Gabe, Stephen Aitken, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona McNeil, Evergreen Vies, Giotta, at Jed Carney, Christine Cole, Justin Dando, tomorrow, James Bromman, Punch Chunk Veteran, at Jenny Forster 7, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandra Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me, have I, Honda, Sam Harriet, Matt Bush, no relation, Richard Sanders, not on Twitter, Glenn Robbie, Bruce Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Linda Cutright, at Leanne Shingles, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers, Kerry Nash, 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Nerissa Simon at Katagal, Laura Nash and Banjo, Hey Banjo, Matthew Hadley, Adnaronga Man, one of our favourites, Shane Horsfall, John Sharpin, Peter Barth, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, also known as Red, White and Blue Lou. And our Extend the Reach supporters who chip in 10 bucks a month. Helen, Damien Marley, Michelle Norton, Rodney Slap, Cameron Tridragon, Daniel at Crazy Keza, John DeHaan at Ange Fennel, Anna Uran at Ross Kenner 888. That's the eight hour day i love it kathy burgess Kristen black melanie denning jody a not on twitter penelope judge jane holloway spirit of anchor and hope at k not love you work at didums sharon kelly beck and lola hello lola richard graverse someone vita w peter the uh, vita w tanya george nandita hannah maury louise hawker megan weckett graham oxley beck cody tracy lucas sandy holland at gail fest greek martin trainer amy Fawcett not on twitter sarah elian and andrew Ivor spiller andrew bryan peter ac linda sam hadid keir patterson lizard twizzle bunk and basher katie ward at the real never long body, Sandy Baumgard at not Sandy B, Renee McGee, Stuart Munn, Marky Mark, I've always loved him. At Vic M Bit, Adrian Valente, Maritza at Carriedale 68, Frank Nehurst, Erica Pizzuti, Donald Vaughan, Claire, Joe Lapino, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, and Pauline Bate. And we love you all equally. Sometimes I do shout out to people who have moved house or have a dog. <laughs> That's right. And of course, it's always great to hear from our listeners and occasionally bump into you wherever you might happen to see us. Do feel free to come and say hello. We do uh, appreciate the uh, interaction and the discussion about the issues we talk about. Don't forget to join your union, australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W. I hope that you've enjoyed this slightly longer edition of the week on Wednesday uh, after just having myself last week, our 120th episode. Can you believe we've done 120 episodes, man? Oh, no, I can't. <laughs> no, I, I genuinely can't. Probably because I'm still sitting here with a dog on my lap. That's right. So don't forget to tune in to The Weekend Wrap on Sunday where we will cover the stories that happen between now and then. And until then, love you, Vanny. I love you too. Bye. Bye.